Hi there. Welcome once again to the Discast. We're taking a little break this week from, you know, politics, media, Ben Smith, <laughs> all the people wants to get away from. And we're going to talk to David Grant, the legendary journalist, where I was talking to him earlier. What exactly should we call what he now does? I think of it as kind of historic journalism historical journalism. But David is a writer of several books, and he actually was, at one point, worked, worked at the New Republic, overlapped a little bit. And then he was a longtime staff writer for The New Yorker, and he's won the George Polk Award and the Edgar Allan Poe Award. I don't know why we ever talk about the awards, because they're also kind of pointless. Anyway, he has lots of awards. More to the point, several of his books and stories have been adapted to major motion pictures, including The Lost City of Z, Old Man and the Gun and Killers of the Flower Moon, which is premiering at Cannes. Yes. Why, why, why weren't you there, David? Where, like, I was. Oh, you I, were? Okay, I made sorry. a cameo. Yes, I am back from my brush with Hollywood. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, well, I need to hear all about that. And the new book, which you're going to talk about today, is this, is this fantastic journey into 18th century seamanship, really, and shipwrecks and treasure hunters and cannibalism and jungles and storms and it's it's got everything really it's really quite sort of indiana jones of a book <laughs> anyway it's called the wager the tale of shipwreck mutiny and murder lovely to see you david and thank you so oh, much for doing the discount oh, it's my pleasure it's great to be on the cast thank you tell me before we start where did you grow up i grew up in westport connecticut i was born in manhattan and then grew up in connecticut for about the first 20 years of my life. And what did your parents do? So my uh, father was a doctor. Uh, he was a cancer specialist. And my mother was an editor and publisher. So I actually grew up around a lot of writers when I was young. So that was your, in, in many ways, obviously the first thought of maybe being a writer. Why not a doctor? I'm afraid of blood. <laughs> I write about, well, the funny thing is I write about these gory, horrifying stories where like people bleed out left and right. And yet if I would actually witness myself, I couldn't handle it. So I think I'd rather stick to words and just describe it and not actually witness it. Really? But, to, but the way you describe it in some of your books, it's as if you've seen it yourself. I mean, some of the scenes in this book are just grotesque in their... <laughs> Exactitude. But it, so, so it does remind you how primitive medicine was. But yes, go on. But yes. how? So, so when did you first start writing? When was that your so, first? Yeah. So it's interesting. You know, my I read when I was early, and I always had some desire to write. I mean, it was just kind of an impulse. It was the way I kind of tried to make sense of the word world. So I was one of these people who did actually in those days. You know, you kept a little journal, and you would write out little things and I would make up stories in the journal. I've still found one of them one day, you know, it's a, you know, really silly, but you know, you kind of project and imagine. And I never knew what form that writing would take. I mean, I, I, and so I just experimented and, and I never had a plan. You know, I, I'm always so impressed when people have a plan. I guess if you're like a doctor, you know, you're going to go to medical school, but you're like, you have some impulse to write. You're like, well, how do I write? How do you earn a living writing? And in college I, I wrote, and I kind of wrote everything. I wrote essays. I did some op-eds and even some reporting. 
I tried to write fiction. I wrote some really crappy. Can I swear on the pod? You absolutely, you absolutely fucking can. (laughs) (laughs) Some really fucking dish here. (laughs) Some really shitty poetry. Oh God, Uh, yes, I I did that too. God, the poetry. I I need to burn it. I need to find it and burn it. Yeah. And so it was always kind of, and it was a struggle. It took me a long time to find a path and kind of find my way to the kind of writing. It was kind of interesting. So I, I, after I graduated from college, I went to Mexico. I had a fellowship there and I was doing research and it was kind of sociological research on different families and their interaction with the one-party state when that one-party state was kind of disintegrating at that time in Mexico. But I tried to write a novel on the side, which is hopefully in some attic and dust on it. And then, you know, eventually you kind of need a job. So I did all sorts of different things. I taught sixth and seventh grade, seventh and eighth grade for a while, Spanish and history. And then eventually I ended up in DC as a copy editor at the Hill newspaper. I just needed a paying job. And that kind of began my kind of full-time career in journalism. Although I did do a little freelancing in Mexico, which was very funny because we didn't have faxes or email back then. So I would type up my articles and I would get on a bus and I would go into Mexico City and I would deliver the articles to a magazine at La Fornada and they would read it in front of me. And if they liked it, they would give me like $2 to pay my bus ride back. <laughs> but in any case, I'm, I'm meandering. <laughs> no, those were the days. I mean, it is hard to remember that you that we did used to do journalism from foreign countries without any of this technology. I actually remember I used to, this is in my, I mean, I'm not, we're, I'm a little bit older than you, but roughly the same age. And in my, in my early, early twenties, I would be writing stuff for the British papers. And every now and again, I would, I'd have to dictate it over the phone, word by word to them. Faxes, something to have happened, but dictation was better. It took a while, but, but it's kind of staggering where we are now compared to what was Going on there. It is crazy. The facility it now, it just it's kind of mind blowing. My father in law, not to go off on a huge tangent, was a, a foreign correspondent for the Times in Poland during Solidarity. And he used to take his reports and they would smuggle them out. They would be sewn into people's copy because it was the only way to get the copy out. And so they would they would sew them into people's clothing who were leaving the country and get they would end up in the in the Times. But that's how we got them out. There was no email, no way to, you know. No, words have to be put on physical pieces of yeah. things and transported in the analog world through time and space. Really an astonishing idea to most people growing up today, but 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 not that long ago. I mean, really, in our in our adult lifetime. So Oh, you're just saying, you know, just so crazy when you and then you go back when we're talking when we later talk about the wager. I mean, the fact that you go on these expeditions and you know, you 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 know, you might try to write a letter and get it on another ship to come back, but no one would hear from you for two years. Yeah. Even when when I came to America as a as a as student, a young student, I would write home long letters and, and post them and they wouldn't get them for a while. I wouldn't hear back for a while. Telephoning was way too expensive for for me and my family at the time. So it was, again, only in our lifetimes, in our, in our adult lifetimes. So where would you first start publishing your, your, your reporting? So yeah, was it, so I, I 
I got hired as a copywriter, which was really kind of funny because anyone who knows me knows I'm actually pretty blind. I have an eye disorder. So me trying to eyeball, like if you look at my computer, I have like text in like 24 font. So me trying to copy and improve other people's tiny text. And it was still those days too, where it wasn't on a computer, they would print out the page and you'd have to look at it. So, and it covered Congress. And then I, you know, it was, it was a st typical startup. You know, when I started, we didn't have computers on our desk. Jennifer Senior, who I know, who you know, was there. We had a pretty impressive, uh, we were all young and everybody kind of went on to do interesting things. And I began to then write some stories I would edit and I kind of wrote a column when I was there. Mostly on, it was always on Capitol Hill and the politics of what was happening. That was kind of the Newt Gingrich era when I was there. And remind me about the New Republic. How did you, how did you get involved with with TNR. Yeah. So, you know, again, I, I was a bad newspaper reporter because I kind of like, I always tell stories the way my grandmother told me stories. And so the idea of giving away what happens in the story in the second graph is so anathema to me. It's like, I'm an alert. It's like an allergy. I just, and so I would, I could never do it. So my ends were always my conclusions that I would kind of turn into the story and the and the and the editor would be like, okay, this is really good. We're going to take your your last graph. We're going to make it the second graph or the third graph. So I I kind of you know I was ill suited for that medium. So magazines seemed better, and I was trying to figure out kind of where could I go. So I did some freelance when you were editor at the New Republic, and then I guess Mike Kelly hired me there as a managing editor. I really wanted to be a writer, but I couldn't find a job at that point to be a writer. So he, he hired me then on staff as the managing editor. And then I became a writer there. I mean, they always call you editors there, which is kind of a misnomer. Like a senior editor, you just wrote. <laughs> yeah, I remember Mike Lewis used to say, "I'm, I'm, 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 I'm really psyched to be a senior editor. I am senior to no one, and I edit nothing." <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly true. And 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 and, but you know, even then, so you know, I I like that because I could spend more time. It was funny though. You you know, you get put in a box as a, a, early in your career because. Whatever people say, oh, well, you did this, so keep doing that. You do that well, so everyone's like, okay, just keep covering Congress. And I was like, you know, I don't really want to keep covering Congress, but you know, I tried my best, and and then I would keep doing these kind of, you know, I would branch out in these kind of. I mean, if someone looks back at some of these New Republic stories, they were like very un-New Republic stories. So like, I mean, sometimes they'd have like a little tangential, like I did James Trafficket, who you, you remember James? I do. I even remember your story about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Crime down USA. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, like it was this, this congressman who, who for, for listeners that remember, he was from Ohio, from the Mahoning Valley. He was kind of a progenitor to Trump. He's, he's actually worth studying today because he really was a kind of early populist and tapped into some of that stuff. But and, and he was very weird, weird hair. Oh, my like God. The, which what? The hair. The funniest hair possible, which we only learned later when he went to jail, turned out to be a toupee. I never thought it could have been a toupee because who would get a toupee that was that ugly? I mean, I just thought he would get a toupee. <laughs> so nobody thought it was a toupee. I wrote that whole profile, never thinking it was a toupee. And then when he went to jail, they took it off. I was like, oh, my God, that was a toupee. It looked like, so a, it looked like a small marsupial had, had sort of yeah, like landed little, on looking, his head. Yeah, it looked like a creature, like a flying squirrel just dropped down and was going to bed take off at any minute. It was like fluffy. It was and when he was on television, it was, oh, you, all I ever did was look at the hair. There was absolutely no yeah. way of listening to anything he said. But he... No, and then he would just say, beam me up, Scotty, at the end. He had some weird Star Trek thing. So in any case, when I was at the New Republic and I learned that he was under federal investigation, 
at that time, I went out to the Mahoning Valley, out to Ohio. I think Peter Biden was the editor then, I think. And uh, so I headed out to Ohio and I started to do research and I learned, you know, that he had been investigated before he had become the honorable gentleman from Ohio when he had been running for sheriff in Ohio back in 1980. I think it was, this was a long time ago, so I forgive my memory of facts. But, and I went to the courthouse and when I was in the courthouse, I found that there was a, a transcript of a wiretap made by, it wasn't a wiretap, actually, no, it was just a transcript of a recording that was made by, there was, I think there were, there were two crabs, they were brothers. It was like Orly the Crab and another crab. I don't remember, Valenny the Crab, I don't remember. There were two crab brothers, one of whom had since disappeared, you know, quite literally effectively wiped out. As they were, or rubbed out, I guess would be the mob term. And it was, you know, and I started reading this document. And in a weird way, it will come back to, where, to your early discussion about how did I get interested in kind of this historical journalism? Because, you know, this isn't that far back. But nonetheless, here was this record just sitting in this box in this courthouse. I don't think anyone had looked at it for whatever, you know, 30 years or 25. And I'm going through this thing and it's like, the honorable gentleman from Ohio is talking about taking bribes from the mob. He's talking about people coming up swimming in the Mahoning Valley, and he is dropping the F-bomb every other word. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And I heard that voice, and I was like, it was like, you know, I'm so sick of all that consultant, po- you know, when you want to cover Congress, everyone's talking this bogus language. It's like just, it's so annoying the way we have, we have like turned human beings into this, this, fake language. But in any case, it was just real language. It was also very criminal language. And uh, and I thought, shit, man, this is the kind of story I want to tell. And these are the kind of voices I want to get to get beneath the surface. And it also gave me my first clue of like, wow, records, man, <laughs> records can really speak. So this was not a government document. It was, again, it was a mobster document, a recording, and it was just unbelievable. Let's go right to the wager, because I, I, there you have and it's an astonishing story, really, that was quite well known at the time, at least subsequently yeah. thereafter. So it was kind of a sensation at its time. It was actually one of the stories that the Grub Street, as you point out, by the way, in Private Eye, you can still see a Grub Street column. It, it still exists in Private Eye in London. Oh, uh, so amazing. the old <laughs> origins of Grub Street, which is basically, it's a great term to mean kind That's... of like classic tabloid hysteria like tabloid red tops you would call them in which in which great yarns would be told and in the great traditions of british journalism some a certain amount of license would be used in ginning them up and so early early journals and and newspapers as it were started to sell stories like this extraordinary story that you have so let's let's just for listeners who aren't aware, just give some very basics about this story. It's essentially a story of, of, of a little expedition that was, that was secretly told to be part of a broader expedition. That I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing something I just read. But also was told that secretly they had to go find a Spanish galleon with a shitload of treasure on it. This was kept from the, the crew, but anyway, that's roughly what happened. It went down to the Cape, or down to the bottom of South America. And I have to say that the stories that you have of, of trying to sail down past the Cape there is, is truly staggering. Anyway, you do a better job than me in summing up the basis. So they got <laughs> shipwrecked. It was a 
the absolute fucking nightmare. They got another shipwreck. There was another party split off. There were three different parties at one point. They all finally actually managed to get home and had an incredible conflict on getting home in 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 in, in conflicting stories about what happened. Okay, that's that's my attempt. And and what is so interesting, you know, what for me, I mean, we can get into this in any particular place, but I mean, for me, there are kind of like unbelievably fascinating elements to this story. And I am not a, you know, a British historian. I'm a complete generalist. So when I begin a story, I never know, I, I barely know anything about anything. You know, it's all new to me. I'm just like a curiosity freak who's like, oh my God, like, whoa, they put people on. So for me, it's like one section is just even how they would load these ships, how they built them, how they manned them. Then you had the voyage part, and as you were describing the Cape Horn part, and then you have the island part, and then you have this unbelievable drama. You know, first you think, okay, it can't get worse. They got Lord of the Flies on the island, and then some do make it back to England, and there's some in the face of court martial for their alleged crimes on the island. And after everything they have been through, they could be hanged. So they begin to wage just war over the truth. So we could come at this any which way, but to me, it was almost like these sections. But I could geek out anywhere. Anywhere you want me to geek out, I can geek out. Well, <laughs> what I found one of the more astounding feats of the book was you obviously did have to master the intricacies of, of how you sailed these things. Now, that is an incredible feat of coordination of, of this vessel that is the, it, the, that's an extremely complicated bunch it has to be done you know, in the middle of incredible turmoil. I mean, I have to say, I was just in awe reading this book of how these people did this. I know, I know part, of the, part of the book is that you're supposed to be horrified by these imperialists. On the other hand, one can be. But at the same time, they built these ships that, yes. that were simply extraordinary phenomena. They, and the... The, the lives they lived on them were are unbelievably hard. And they and, lost of life. I mean, we just quite often they would lose several hundred people at one go. Yeah. And 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 many of the people who are sailing on these expeditions are not even thinking about imperialism or the constructs of imperialism. When you read their journals, they're thinking about their daily lives, their, you know, how to survive, how to make money, how to get back home. But you know, these ships were, you know, they were the engineering marvels of their time. They could, you know, you know, they were the wager, for example, is about 123 feet long, had three masts. It could fly as many as 12 sails and the larger warships could fly as many as 18 sails. They were also these murderous instruments because they were being set out, you know, for warfare and naval assault. And then at the same time, they are these homes meant to be these homes for seamen who are packed together. They come from all walks of life. So um, they are like these little floating civilizations. So on one of these ships, you will have aristocrats, who would be the officers and dandies. You'd have city paupers. You'd have free black seamen. You'd have professional kind of all thrown together, most of them complete strangers. And then they have to be somehow kind of molded into this, what, what Nelson famously called the Band of Brothers. And so, yeah, these ships, and, and they were very complex. And of course, on this expedition, you know, the, the seeds of the destruction of the expedition can be traced back in part to its origins, because it was typical of many wars where everybody's clamoring for it. There's this great fervor for this war, and yet nobody wants to pay for it. 
And so, you know, and they don't have men to sail on it. So they're sitting we're, out. We're talking press- about the English-Spanish War, otherwise known as the, the War of... War of Jenkins era, yes. a real curiosity of a name, which you can talk more about. But yeah, so they... And so, you know, they're short of men on these expeditions. And so what do they do? You know, they send out these press gangs. Again, press gangs to me were like, oh, what? what's interesting about press gangs in the American Revolution? And then you're doing all these research. You know, they would go around to these ports and these, the, uh, you know, they would board ships and they would eyeball you. You know, if you were a mariner, they, you know, if you had any telltale sign, they'd even look like your fingertips. If you had a little bit of tar on your fingernails because that was used on ships, they would, you know, round you up and take you on the ship. And they were still short of seamen at that point. They needed about nearly 2,000 people for the expedition. And so they took the extreme step of rounding up soldiers and seamen from a retirement home. Right. And these guys were in their 60s and 70s. I laugh only because it's gallows humor when you write about this stuff. You, you have to develop a sailor's humor to deal with it. But they, you know, they're missing an assortment of limbs. And some were so sickly had to be hoisted onto the vessels on stretchers. So you, you could so you could really trace the the, the seeds of, you know, the, imagine the challenges that these guys face and these there officers an, face. There was an 82-year-old. Was a, uh, yes, a, the cook on the wager the was 82. was 82, right? It's just nuts. I mean, when you know what he went through, it's just absolutely nuts. I mean, what a hardy constitution. And then there are boys on these expeditions. They're, they're as young as six. Yep. You know, they're like skylarking, you know, and playing on a Sunday in the vessel before, you know, everything goes down. And one wonders, where did they come from? Like, who do they have fathers? Do they have yeah. mothers? Yeah. So how yeah. did they show up in this? At the same time, you also get this sense that, my God, the bonds that you must forge in that circumstance. Yes. It's, it, it, yes. it's uh, it, the intensity of them. You also had in this, in this, you had a rather devout person, a rather high-minded yeah. Person, you yep. also had someone who had, who was really just on the edge of being an officer, an aspiring Captain Cheap. It's this wonderful name, too. Cheap. Yes, I know. It's very Dickensian. It's just fantastic. It's such a great English name, Captain Cheap. <laughs> and and this Captain Cheap clearly had a, he was insecure socially, as one yes. is in the English class system, but also terribly desirous of of honor and glory. But his insecurities become incredibly important as this as this journey goes on. Let's talk about a couple of things that really fascinate me on this. Scurvy. Okay. Scurvy. Now, as, it, as an English, I was always told about scurvy. I, I was always told that, yes, there used to be a thing called scurvy, and that's why we used to eat limes. We taught this in history in English schools, and that's why we were called limeys, et cetera, et cetera. But I, and I thought of scurvy as like, oh, yeah, you get kind of pains in your bones and something. No, it's it's incredible. Tell us what scurvy is. Yeah. So, you know, I had the same impression as you. You know, I had some vague notion of scurvy. Like, this is, this is your gums get kind of swollen and, you know, and, and did that happen on Antarctica? But I, and, and so when I started to read about this, I thought, you know, I don't think I've ever read actually like a, a vivid, meticulous forensic accounting of what scurvy is and does to you. And it so happens that on this expedition, they suffer one of the worst outbreaks of scurvy ever recorded in maritime history. So you have their journals and their diaries and their letters, and you can depict what happened. So as they're coming around Cape Horn in the storm, they need everybody possible to operate these ships if they're going to survive. And yet many of them can no longer rise from their hammocks. Um, Their skin is kind of changing colors. Then their teeth begin to fall out then their hair begins to fall out. 
And then the craziest part is the like the cartilage that seemed to kind of connect the bone seems to be coming undone. So there's an account of, of one seaman who had fought in a battle five decades earlier where he had broken a bone. Now, obviously, over five decades, that bone had long since healed. And suddenly, inexplicably, it shatters again in the very same place. Their body seemed to be just coming undone. And then the other thing I didn't know about it was that it affected your senses. And to me, that was what was the, one of the more striking. You know, they would have these kind of delusions and then this total despair. One seaman described it as the disease got into our brains and we went raving mad. And of course, what they didn't know was that the cure was so simple that all they needed was more vitamin C. They needed more fruits and vegetables on their diet. You know, they didn't have refrigeration then. So they didn't bring a lot of fruits and vegetables on a ship. In fact, they didn't bring any. So they're they're suffering. And it was interesting when I was writing about this, it was right at the, I was working on this chapter during COVID and it was at the beginning of COVID. I remember that we would have these packages, you know, coming to the door and we didn't know like, can we bring the package inside? Can we open the package? And so I was writing about them suffering from scurvy and I had such a great, I mean, empathy almost like, because they have no idea what's causing it. They're like, they're like, is it our breath? Is it because we're touching? Is it in the air? Do we need to get buried in sand? Like, what do we need? And, uh, but yes. And that it, was, it, 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 that was after they had typhus. They had a, that was after yes. the entire ship yes. had gone under with typhus. Also another disease that you had, they had no idea where it was coming from. So they no. are, they are, they are subjected in this endless voyage, not endless, but but risky voyage to two unbelievably awful diseases that that ravages them. What toll? What percentage of the sailors were seamen were dead by 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 the end of the scurvy outbreak? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to have a precise tally because there were people who died of typhus, and then who died of scurvy, and then there were also big died from accidents, but. Hundreds and hundreds. I mean, the ships were, you know, were being depleted by half of their complement as of by the time they're coming around Cape Horn. I mean, it's just astonishing. And, you know, these ships, you know, so the way they would operate, you know, they required a lot of people. I mean, you had to climb the mast, you had to, you know, work the sails. And so, you know, at this moment when they need, you know, at least half of a complement of a ship. So let's say on the wager, there were 250 men, you know, you need about 125 on deck on watch working a ship. You know, they were lucky if they could muster 12 people, 12 people to sail one of these vessels through a typhoon. Through a typhoon where they also don't have any reliable coordinates, where they are. And describe to us what it what it's like to sail around the Cape Horn. I mean, this sounds like I have never I've never appreciated the Panama Canal more than having after having <laughs> having read this yes, book. Yes, it's so true. It's so true. You know, and Jesus, what's, I would what's I would have I would have carried that ship on my my shoulders rather than go through yeah. that hell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, to, to your very point, even before the Panama Canal, the, the Spanish Empire had become so terrified of of trying to bring their cargo around Cape Horn, they had decided simply to sail their cargo to Panama then haul their cargo through jungle-infested, dying of yellow fever, and then load it on ships on the Pacific side rather than try to tempt the fate around Cape Horn. So it just gives you a sense of how deadly it was. And again, you know, it's always interesting to me when you do research because you have these vague notions of things. Like I was like, oh, yeah, the seas around Cape Horn, they're really bad. Like I just knew that, but that was about all I knew. And you're like, oh, yeah, you know, that's always famously bad. Like, But 
you know, but you, you, when you do research, to say, well, why? Like, why? Like, why there? Like, why isn't it, you know, you know, why is it so bad there? And then you realize, like, you do research and you learn that, like, oh, my God, like, it's the one place on Earth where the seas actually travel around the globe uninterrupted by land. So they're actually never hitting land. They're not getting dulled or blocked or slowed. So they accumulate power over about 13,000 miles. And then they get funneled into this narrow passage between Antarctica and the tip of South America, the island of Cape Horn. And the ground also shallows there. It's suddenly shallow. So it generates the worst currents, the most violent, strongest currents on Earth. And then it also generates these Cape Horn roller waves that could dwarf a 90-foot mass. And then the winds there frequently accelerate to hurricane force, and they can reach even 200 miles per hour. There's a great quote from Herman Melville, who later rounded the horn. Later rounded the horn. He compared it to a descent into hell in Dante's Inferno. And so when they're coming around the horn in these, you know, 123 to 150-foot vessels, depending on the size of the warship, they are being bandied about as if they were on the pitiful rowboat. And just to give you an image or a vision, you know, in one of the accounts, the winds are so strong and the ships are being bandied about so much they can't fly their sails because the sails keep blowing out. And yet one of the captains can't control the ship if he doesn't have any sails in the waves. So he orders his top men, those are the people who climb the mast in order ordinarily to work the sails, who are often usually younger and light and quick to climb these masts up about 100 feet in a typhoon when the ship is rocking about 45 degrees to one side and 45 degrees the other, to use their bodies and hold on to the ropes, like, you know, they're spider-like, to have their bodies act as sails, to catch the wind in a gale. And so they are clinging and holding on. And it actually did allow that commander to maneuver the ship, but one seaman, got tossed into the water and he's, you, you know, they describe him swimming after the boat. You can't turn a vessel around in a storm and they know he's going to drown and they just keep watching him swimming frantically. And it actually led to a, a very beautiful poem later. I think it's called The Castaway. Yeah, that's a particularly chilling moment that they spent. And again, also, you ask yourself at that point, I, why, why would anybody do this? <laughs> I'm sorry. What I, is Sam? I just they, I think, yeah. They, they are. I think Samuel Johnson. I think compared it to like being being in. It's like it's like being in a prison, except you can drown. Yes, <laughs> and you can never leave. You can't leave. Uh, this is my main. I, the one reason I would never, I could not imagine going on a cruise. I, I can't. I couldn't leave. It's 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 prison. I'm on, yeah. I've been on boats where I have felt incredibly constrained. I cannot even begin to fathom the ordeal that these people put themselves through. Now, they were putting themselves through this for what? Now, obviously, some of them have been just forced into it, which is yes. a, a bit like the Russian yeah, army. It, it wasn't exactly something that people yearned to do. But, a few, but nonetheless, clearly Captain Cheap thought this was going to make his reputation, his life. And, of course, they were after a shitload of money. I mean, yep. what was the... Actual price in today's terms about of 80, about eighty-two million dollars worth of silver. I mean, could you in those days? Could you imagine? I'm just sitting in one place, and not only an astonishing silver, amount, but Spain silver, so that it was it was yeah. it was also a big 
psychological victory in a war that really didn't have many good psychological victories and had a hell of a lot of of casualties anyway. But the, I mean, we're going to give spoilers, so screw it. There's got to be spoilers. (laughs) They get shipwrecked. And, and, and slowly but surely, again, you just wanted, there's nothing to eat in this place. Now you went there, right? You went to this place. Yes. No, this, one of this God forsaken <laughs> part of the earth imaginable yes. in which there yes. appear to be there appears to be nothing to eat. <laughs> yes. Fennel. Yeah. They were fennel, which apparently cured their scurvy. But yeah, they had a little bit of celery. A, a little, little bit, bit of celery. celery. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of sprout of celery that yes, which I tasted when I was on the island. It was kind of dirty and salty, but I did try it. They're going through this incredible ordeal, and they actually find themselves finally being dragged onto the rocks yes and you know imagine this they you know they they have battled this typhoon they battled scurvy and they miscalculated their longitude because they didn't they couldn't back then you couldn't calculate your longitude because they didn't have reliable clocks they have to rely on dead reckoning which essentially amounts to basically a informed guesswork and a leap of faith and so as they're coming up the coast of, of patagonia they miscalculate their longitude by hundreds of miles. Suddenly they hit a rock, a submerged rock. And you have to remember these ships, the wager was their home, their fortress. Most seamen back then didn't even know how to swim. And so it hits this rock. The whole ship shudders. The rudder shatters. A two-ton anchor falls through the bottom of the hull. Then another wave comes along and it kind of sweeps the wager off the rock. And it's suddenly careening through a minefield of rocks uh, without a rudder. Water's pouring through it until it finally smashes into some other rocks. And it finally just begins to completely rip apart. And the decks are caving in and the planks are shattering. Water is surging upward. These ships had lots of rats and the rats are scurrying upward. Those who had been suffering from scurvy and were couldn't get out of their hammocks, they drowned. But the ship did not yet completely sink. It became wedged between these rocks. And so when the survivors climb up, they look out and in the distance, they look through the mist and they could see this desolate island. And of course, that's where the real hell would begin. I'm trying to imagine now how many of them... Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. andrewsullivan.substack.com, subscribe and get the whole thing.
Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.